Chapter Seven of the Story of the Atlantic Telegraph. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Telegraph by Henry M. Field. Chapter Seven, Seeking Aid from Congress. When Mr. Field reached home from abroad, he hoped for a brief respite. He had had a pretty hard campaign during the summer and autumn in England, and needed at least a few weeks of rest, but that was denied him. He landed in New York on Christmas Day, and was not allowed even to spend the new year with his family. There were interests of the company in Newfoundland which required immediate attention, and it was important that one of the directors should go there without delay. As usual, it devolved upon him. He left at once for Boston, where he took the steamer to Halifax, and thence to St. John's. Such a voyage may be very agreeable in summer but in midwinter it is not a pleasant thing to face the storms of those northern latitudes. The passage was unusually tempestuous. At St. John's he broke down and was put under the care of a physician, but he did not stop to think of for himself. The work for which he came was done, and though the physician warned him that it was a great risk to leave his bed, he took the steamer on her return and was again in New York after a month's absence, a month of hardship, of exposure, and of suffering, such as he had long occasion to remember. The mention of this voyage came up a year afterward at a meeting of the Atlantic Telegraph Company in London, when a resolution was offered, tendering Mr. Field a vote of thanks for the great services he had rendered to the company by his untiring zeal, energy, and devotion. Mr. Brooking, the vice-chairman, had spent a large part of his life in Newfoundland, and knew the dangers of that inhospitable coast, and in seconding the resolution he said, It is now about a year and a half ago since I had the pleasure of making the acquaintance of my friend Mr. Field. It was he who initiated me into this company, and induced me to take an interest in it from its earliest stage. From that period to the present I have observed in Mr. Field the most determined perseverance, and the exercise of great talent, extraordinary assiduity, and diligence, coupled with an amount of fortitude which has seldom been equalled. I have known him cross the Atlantic in the depth of winter, and within twenty-four hours after his arrival in New York, having ascertained that his presence was necessary in a distant British colony, he has not hesitated at once to direct his course thitherward. That colony is one with which I am intimately acquainted, having resided in it for upward of twenty years, and am enabled to speak of the hazards and danger which attended a voyage to it in winter. Mr. Field no sooner arrived at New York in the latter part of December than he got aboard a steamer for Halifax and proceeded to St. John's, Newfoundland. In three weeks he accomplished there a very great object for this company. He procured the passage of an act of the legislature which has given to our company the right of establishing a footing on those shores. The rights before conferred, it would seem, applied only to the Newfoundland Company. That is only one of the acts which he has performed with a desire to promote the interests of this great enterprise. The very next day after his return from Newfoundland, Mr. Field was called to Washington to seek the aid of his own government to the Atlantic Telegraph. The English government had proffered the most generous aid, both in ships to lay the cable and in an annual subsidy of fourteen thousand pounds it was on every account desirable that this should be met by corresponding liberality on the part of the american government before he left england he had sent home the letter received from the lord commissioners of the treasury and thereupon the directors of the new york newfoundland and london telegraph company had enclosed a copy to the president with a letter asking for the same aid in ships and in an annual sum of seventy thousand dollars equivalent to fourteen thousand pounds to be paid for the government messages, the latter to be conditioned on the success of the telegraph, and to be continued only so long as it was in full operation. 
They urged with reason that the English government had acted with great liberality, not only toward the enterprise, but toward our own government. Although both ends of the line were in the British possessions, it had claimed no exclusive privileges, but had stipulated for perfect equality between the United States and Great Britain. The agreement expressly provided that the British government shall have a priority in the conveyance of their messages over all others, subject to the exception only of the government of the United States, in the event of their entering into an arrangement with the telegraph company similar in principle to that of the British government, in which case the messages of the two governments shall have priority in the order in which they arrive at the stations. The letter to the President called attention to this generous offer, an offer which it was manifestly to the advantage of our government to accept, and added, the company will enter into a contract with the government of the United States on the same terms and conditions as it has made with the British government. They asked only for the same recognition and aid which they had received in England. This surely was not a very bold request. It was natural that American citizens should think that in a work begun by Americans, and of which, if successful, their country would reap largely the honor and the advantage, they might expect the aid from their own government, which they had already received from a foreign power. It was, therefore, not without a mixture of surprise and mortification that they learned that the proposal in Congress had provoked a violent opposition, and that the bill was likely to be defeated. Such was the attitude of affairs when Mr. Field returned from Newfoundland, and which led him to hasten to Washington. He now found that it was much easier to deal with the English than with the American government. Whatever may be said of their respective methods of administration, it must be confessed that the forms of English procedure furnish great facility in the dispatch of business. A contract can be made by the Lords of the Treasury without waiting the action of Parliament. The proposal was referred to two or three intelligent officers of the government, perhaps even to a single individual, on whose report it takes action without further delay. Thus it is probable that the action of the British government was decided wholly by the recommendation of Mr. Wilson, formed after the visit of Mr. Field. But in our country we do things differently. Here it would be considered a stretch of power for any administration to enter into a contract with a private company, a contract binding the government for a period of twenty-five years, and involving an annual appropriation of money without the action of Congress. This is a safeguard against reckless and extravagant expenditure, but, as one of the penalties we pay for our more popular form of government, in which everything has to be referred to the people, it involves delay, and sometimes the defeat of wise and important public measures. Besides, shall we confess it to our shame, another secret influence often appears in American legislation, which has defeated many an act demanded by the public good, the influence of the lobby. This now began to show itself in opposition. It had been whispered in Washington that the gentlemen in New York, who were at the head of this enterprise, were very rich, and a measure coming from such a source surely ought to be made to pay tribute before it was allowed to pass. This was a new experience. Those few weeks in Washington were worse than being among the icebergs off the coast of Newfoundland. The Atlantic Cable has had many a kink since, but never did it seem to be entangled in such a hopeless twist as when it got among the politicians. But it will be very unjust to suppose that there were no better influences in our halls of Congress. There were then, as there have always been in our history, some men of large wisdom and of a noble patriotic pride, who in such a measure thought only of the good of their country and of the triumph of science and civilization. Two years after, in August 1858, when the Atlantic Telegraph proved at last a reality, and the New World was full of its fame, Mr. Seward, in a speech at Auburn, thus referred to the ordeal it had to pass through in Congress. The true great countries of which I have spoken, England and America, are now ringing with the praise of Cyrus W. Field, 
who chiefly has brought this great enterprise to its glorious and beneficent consummation. You have never heard his story. Let me give you a few points in it, as a lesson that there is no condition of life in which a man, endowed with native genius, a benevolent spirit, and a courageous patience, may not become a benefactor of nations and of mankind. After speaking of the efforts by which this New York merchant brought into being an association of Americans and Englishmen, which contributed from surplus wealth the capital necessary as a basis for the enterprise, he adds, It remained to engage the consent and the activity of the governments of Great Britain and the United States. That was all that remained. Such consent and activity on the part of some one great nation of Europe was all that remained needful for Columbus when he stood ready to bring a new continent forward as a theater of the world's civilization. But in each case that effort was the most difficult of all. Cyrus W. Field, by assiduity and patience, first secured consent and conditional engagement on the part of Great Britain, and then, less than two years ago, he repaired to Washington. The President and Secretary of State individually favored his proposition, but the jealousies of parties and sections in Congress forbade them to lend it their official sanction and patronage. He appealed to me. I drew the necessary bill. With the generous aid of others, Northern representatives, and the indispensable aid of the late Thomas J. Rusk, a senator from Texas, that bill, after a severe contest and long delay, was carried through the Senate of the United States by the majority, if I remember rightly, of one vote, and escaped defeat in the House of Representatives with equal difficulty. I have said the aid of Mr. Rusk was indispensable. If anyone has wondered why I, an extreme northern man, loved and lamented Thomas J. Rusk, an equally extreme southern man, he has here an explanation. There was no good thing which, as it seemed to me, I could not do in Congress with his aid. When he died, it seemed to me that no good thing could be done by anyone. Such was the position of Cyrus W. Field at that stage of the great enterprise. But, thus at last fortified with capital derived from New York and London, and with the navies of Great Britain and the United States at his command, he has, after trials that would have discouraged any other than a true discoverer, brought the great work to a felicitous consummation. And now the Queen of Great Britain and the President of the United States stand waiting his permission to speak, and ready to speak at his bidding, and the people of those two great countries await only the signal from him to rush into a fraternal embrace, which will prove the oblivion of ages of suspicion, of jealousies, and of anger. Mr. Seward might well refer with pride to the part he took in sustaining this enterprise. He was from the beginning its firmest supporter. The bill was introduced into the Senate by him, and was carried through mainly by his influence, seconded by Mr. Rusk, Mr. Douglas, and one or two others. It was introduced on the 9th of January, and came up for consideration on the 21st. Its friends had hoped that it might pass with entire anonymity, but such was the opposition that the discussion lasted two days. The report shows that it was a subject of animated and almost angry debate, which bought out the secret of the opposition to aid being given by the government. Probably no measure was ever introduced in Congress for the help of any commercial enterprise that some member, imagining that it was to benefit a particular section, did not object that it was unconstitutional. This objection was well answered in this case by Mr. Benjamin of Louisiana, who asked, If we have a right to hire a warehouse of Bort Mahone in the Mediterranean for storing naval stores, have we not a right to hire a company to carry our messages? I should as soon think of questioning the constitutional power of the government to pay freight to a vessel for carrying its mailbags across the ocean, as to pay a telegraph company a certain sum per annum for conveying its messages by the use of the electric telegraph. This touched the precise ground on which the appropriation was asked. In their memorial to the President, 
the company had said, Such a contract will, we suppose, fall within the provisions of the Constitution in regard to postal arrangements, of which this is only a new and improved form. Mr. Bayard of Delaware explained in the same terms the nature of the proposed agreement. It is a mail operation. It is a post office arrangement. It is for the transmission of intelligence, and that is what I understood to be the function of the post office department. I hold it, therefore, to be as legitimately within the powerful powers of the government as the employing of a stagecoach or a steamship or a ship to transport the mails either to foreign countries or to different portions of our own country. Of course, as in all appropriations of money, the question of expense had to be considered, and here there were not wanting some to cry out against the extravagance of paying $70,000 a year. We had not then got used to the colossal expenditures of war when we grew familiar with paying three millions a day. $70,000 seemed a great sum, but Mr. Bayard in reply reminded that England then paid $900,000 a year for the transportation of the mails between the United States and England, and argued that it was a very small amount for the great service rendered. He said, We have sent out ships to make explorations and observations in the Red Sea and in South America. We sent one or two expensive expeditions to Japan, and published at great cost some elegant books narrating their exploits. The expense even in ships alone in that instance was at the rate of twenty to one here, but no cry of economy was then raised. I look upon this proposition solely as a business measure. In that point of view, I believe the government will obtain more service for the amount of money than by any other contract than we have ever made, or now can make, for the transmission of intelligence. As to the expense of furnishing a ship of war to assist in laying the cable, Mr. Douglas asked, Will it cost anything to furnish the use of one of our steamships? They are idle. We have no practical use for them at present. They are in commission. They have their coal on board and their full armament. They will be rendering no service to us if they are not engaged in this work. If there was nothing more than a question of national pride involved, I would gladly furnish the use of an American ship for that purpose. England tenders one of her national vessels, and why should we not tender one also? It costs England nothing, and it costs us nothing. Mr. Russ made the same point in arguing that ships might be sent to assist in laying the cable, giving this homely but sufficient reason. I think that it is better than to keep them rotting at the navy yards with the officers frolicking on shore. Mr. Douglas urged still further, American citizens have commenced this enterprise. The honor and the glory of the achievement, if successful, will be due to American genius and American daring. Why should the American government be so penurious? I do not know that this is the proper word, for it costs nothing. Why should we be actuated by so illiberal a spirit as to refuse the use of one of our steamships to convey the wire when it does not cost one farthing to the treasury of the United States? But behind all these objections of expense and of want of constitutional power was one greater than all, and that was England. The real animus of the opposition was a fear of giving some advantage to Great Britain. This has always been sufficient to excite the hostility of a certain class of politicians. No matter what the subject of the proposed cooperation, if it were purely a scientific expedition, they were sure England was going to profit by it to our injury. So now there were those who felt that in this submarine cable England was literally crawling under the sea to get some advantage of the United States. This jealousy and hostility spoke loudest from the mouths of Southerners. It is noteworthy that men who, in less than five years after, were figuring abroad, courting foreign influence against their own country, were then fiercest in a denunciation of England. Mason and Slidell voted together against the bill. Butler of South Carolina was very bitter in his opposition, saying with a sneer that 
This was simply a mail service under the surveillance of Great Britain, and so was Hunter of Virginia, while Jones of Tennessee, bursting with patriotism, found a sufficient reason for his opposition, in that he did not want anything to do with England or Englishmen. But it should be said in justice that to this general hostility of the South there were more exceptions. Benjamin of Louisiana gave the bill an earnest support. So did Mallory of Florida, chairman of the Naval Committee, and especially that noble southerner Rusk of Texas, with whose aid, as Mr. Seward said, it seemed that there was no good thing which he could not do in Congress. Mr. Rusk declared that he regarded it as the great enterprise of the age, and expressed his surprise at the very moderate subsidy asked for, only $70,000 a year, saying that, with a reasonable prospect of success in an enterprise, calculated to produce such beneficial results, he should be willing to vote $200,000. But with the majority of Southern Senators, there was a repugnance to acting in concert with England, which could not be overcome. They argued that this was not only true between England and the United States, but between England and her own colonies, a line of which she alone was to reap the benefit. Both its termini were in the British possessions. In the event of war, this would give a tremendous advantage to the power holding both ends of the line. All the speakers harped on this string, and it may be worth a page or two to see how this was met and answered. When Mr. Hunter of Virginia asked, What security are we to have that in time of war we shall have the use of the telegraph as well as the British government? Mr. Seward answered, It appears not to have been contemplated by the British government that there would ever be any interruption of the amicable relations between the two countries. Therefore nothing was proposed in their contract for the contingency of war. That the two termini are both in the British dominions is true, but it is equally true that there is no other terminus on this continent where it is practicable to make that communication except in the British dominions. We have no dominions on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. There is no other route known on which the telegraphic wire could be drawn through the ocean so as to find a proper resting place or anchorage except this. The distance on this route is 1,700 miles. It is not even known that the telegraphic wire will carry the fluid with sufficient strength to communicate across those 1,700 miles. That is yet a scientific experiment, and the company are prepared to make it. In regard to war, all the danger is this. There is hazards of war at some future time, and whatever arrangements we might make, war would break them up. No treaty would save us. My own hope is that after the telegraphic wire is once laid, there will be no more war between the United States and Great Britain. I believe that whenever such a connection as this shall be made, we diminish the chances of war and diminish them in such a degree that it is not necessary to take them into consideration at the present moment. Let us see where we are. What shall we gain by refusing to enter into this agreement? If we do not make it, the British government has only to add 10,000 pounds sterling more annually, and they have the whole monopoly of this wire, without any stipulation whatever, not only in war, but in peace. If we make this contract with the company, we at least secure the benefit of it in a time of peace, and we postpone and delay the dangers of war. If there shall ever be war, it would abrogate all treaties that can be made in regard to this subject, unless it be true, as the Honorable Senator from Virginia thinks, that treaties can be made which will be regarded as obligatory by nations in time of war. If so, we have all the advantages in time of peace, for the purpose of making such treaties hereafter, without the least reason to infer that there would be any reluctance on the part of the British government to enter into that negotiation with us, if we should desire to do so. The British government, if it has such a disposition as the Honorable Senator supposes, would certainly have proposed to monopolize all this telegraphic line instead of proposing to divide it. Footnote A. 
It is worthy of notice that when the bill granting a charter to the Atlantic Telegraph Company was offered in the British Parliament, at least one nobleman found fault with it on this very ground, that it gave away important advantages which properly belonged to England, and which she ought to reserve to herself. In the House of Lords, on the 20th of July, 1857, on the motion for the third reading of the Telegraph Company's bill, Lord Reddesdale called attention to the fact that, although the termini of the proposed telegraph were both in Her Majesty's dominions, namely in Ireland and Newfoundland, the American government were to enjoy the same priority as the British government with regard to the transmission of messages. It was said that this equal right was owing to the fact that a joint guarantee had been given by the two governments. He thought, however, it would have been far better policy on the part of Her Majesty's government if they had either undertaken the whole guarantee themselves, and thus had obtained free and sole control over the connecting line of telegraph, or had invited our own colonies to participate in that guarantee, rather than have allowed a foreign government to join in making it. At the same time, if the clause in question had the sanction of Her Majesty's ministry, it was not his intention to object to it. Earl Granville said this telegraph was intended to connect two countries, and as the two governments had gone hand in hand with regard to the guarantee, it seemed only reasonable that both should have the same rights as to transmitting messages. The bill was then read a third time and passed. Mr. Hale spoke in the same strain. It seems to me that the war spirit and the contingencies of war are brought in a little too often upon matters of legislation, which have no necessary connection with them. If we are to be governed by considerations of that sort, they would paralyze all improvements, they would stop the great appropriations for commerce, they would at once neutralize that policy which sets our ocean steamers afloat. Nobody pretends that the intercourse which is kept up between Great Britain and this country by our ocean steamers will be continued in time of war, nor the communication with France or other nations. If we are deterred for that reason, we shall be pursuing a policy that will paralyze improvements on those parts of the coast which lie contiguous to the lakes. The city of Detroit will have to be abandoned, beautiful and progressive as it is, because in time of war the mansions of her citizens there lie within the range of British guns. What will the suspension bridge at Niagara be good for in a time of war? If the British cut off their end of it, our end will not be worth much. I believe that among the things which will bind us together in peace, this telegraphic wire will be one of the most potent. It will bind the two countries together literally with cords of iron that will hold us in the bonds of peace. I repudiate entirely the policy which refuses to adopt it, because in time of war it may be interrupted. Such a policy as that would drive us back to a state of barbarism. It would destroy the spirit of progress. It would retard improvement. It would paralyze all the advances which are making us a more civilized and a more informed and a better people than the one which preceded us. Mr. Douglas cut the matter short by saying, I am willing to vote for this bill as a peace measure, as a commercial measure but not as a war measure, and when war comes, let us rely on our power and ability to take this end of the wire and keep it. Mr. Benjamin said, The sum of money that this government proposes to give for the use of this telegraph will amount, in the twenty-five years, to something between three hundred thousand and four hundred thousand pounds. Now, if this be a matter of such immense importance to Great Britain, if this be the golden opportunity, and if indeed her control of this line be such a powerful engine, whether in war or in peace, is it not most extraordinary that she proposes to us full share in its benefits and in its control, and allows to our government equal rights with herself in the transmission of communications for the sum of about three hundred thousand pounds, to be paid in annual installments through twenty-five years? 
If this be indeed a very important instrumentality in behalf of Great Britain for the conduct of her commerce, the government of her possessions, or the efficient action of her troops in time of war, the three hundred thousand pounds expended upon it are but as a drop in the bucket when compared with the immense resource of that empire. I think, therefore, we may as well discard from our consideration of this subject all these visions about the immense importance of the governmental aid in this matter to be rendered under the provisions of this bill. Mr. President, let us not always be thinking of war. Let us be using means to preserve peace. The amount that will be expended by this government in six months' war with Great Britain will far exceed everything that we shall have to pay for the use of this telegraphic line for the entire twenty-five years of the contract, and do you not believe that this instrumentality will be sufficiently efficient to bind together the peace, the commerce, and the interests of the two countries, so as even to defer a war for six months or twelve months, if one should ever become inevitable, beyond the period at which it would otherwise occur? If it does that, it will in six or eight or nine months repay the expenditures of twenty-five years. Again, sir, I say, if Great Britain wants it for war, she will put it there at her own expense. It is not three hundred thousand pounds or four hundred thousand pounds that will arrest her. If, on the contrary, this be useful to commerce, useful in an eminent degree, useful for the preservation of peace, then I confess I feel some pride that my country should aid in establishing it. I confess I feel a glow of something like pride that I belong to the great human family when I see these triumphs of science by which mind is brought into instant communication with mine across the intervening oceans, which to our unenlightened forefathers seemed placed there by providence as an eternal barrier to communication between man and man. Now, sir, we speak from minute to minute. Scarcely can a gun be fired in war on the European shore ere its echoes will reverberate among our own mountains and be heard by every citizen in the land. And this is a triumph of science, of American genius, and I for one feel proud of it, and feel desirous of sustaining and promoting it. Mr. Douglas said, Our policy is essentially a policy of peace. We want peace with the whole world, above all other considerations. There never has been a time in the history of this republic when peace was more essential to our prosperity, to our advancement, and to our progress than it is now. We have made great progress in time of peace, an almost inconceivable progress since the last war with Great Britain. Twenty-five years more of peace will put us far in advance of any other nation on earth. It was fit that Mr. Seward, who introduced a bill and opened the debate, should close in words that now seem prophetic and show the large wisdom, looking before and after, of this eminent statesman. There was an American citizen who, in the year 1770, or thereabout, indicated to this country, to Great Britain, and to the world, the use of the lightning for the purposes of communication of intelligence, and that was Dr. Franklin. I am sure there is not only no member of the Senate, but no American citizen, however humble, who would be willing to have struck out from the achievements of American invention this great discovery of the lightning as an agent for the uses of human society. The suggestion made by that distinguished and illustrious American was followed up some fifty years afterward by another suggestion and another indication from another American, and that was Mr. Samuel F. B. Morse, who indicated to the American government the means by which the lightning could be made to write, and by which the telegraphic wires could be made to supply the place of wind and steam for carrying intelligence. We have followed out the suggestions of those eminent Americans hitherto, or at a very small cost. The government of the United States appropriated $40,000 to test the practicability of Morse's suggestion. 
The $40,000 thus expended established its practicability and its use. Now there is no person on the face of the globe who can measure the price at which, if a reasonable man, he will be willing to strike from the world the use of the magnetic telegraph as a means of communication between different portions of the same country. This great invention is now to be brought into its further, wider, and broader use. The use by the General Society of Nations, international use, the use of the Society of Mankind. Its benefits are large, just in proportion to the extent and scope of its operation. They are not merely benefits to the government, but they are benefits to the citizens and subjects of all nations and of all states. I might enlarge further on this subject, but I forbear to do so, because I know that at some future time I shall come across the record of what I have said today. I know that then what I have said today, by way of anticipation, will fall so far short of the reality of benefits which individuals, states, and nations will have derived from this great enterprise, that I shall not reflect upon it without disappointment and mortification. After such arguments, it should seem that there could be but one opinion, and yet the bill passed the Senate by only one majority. It also had to run the gauntlet of the House of Representatives, where it encountered the same hostility. But at length it got through, and was signed by President Pierce on the 3rd of March, the day before he went out of office. Thus it became a law. End of chapter 7 Recorded by Alex C. Talander www.bookbanter.net